We've been talking about being entangled in sin. The Bible says that it's easy to get entangled in sin. And the temptation for every one of us over the last few weeks is to think of someone else (laughs) when we're talking about these ideas, these sins that easily entangle people. But I want to encourage you not to do that this morning. I want to just encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, are you speaking to me? Is there something in my life that is entangling me? We've talked about a lot of things, but Greg mentioned it a minute ago. There's three consequences that are true for every person who's entangled in sin. Your, your communication with God is interrupted. You're not able to do that. Think about what we're going through right now as a church. We're seeking to nominate people who are going to then seek the Lord about who our next pastor should be. This is very strategic in our church. And you, and you should nominate people, but you shouldn't just nominate people you're friends with or just think of someone, hey, they'd be good. You should seek the Lord about who you should nominate. So he's a part of this process all the way through. But if you're entangled in sin, you can't even hear from the Lord. It's very consequential. Your, your communication is interrupted, but also your growth is disrupted. You're not able to go forward and grow in your relationship with the Lord, have an ever-growing relationship uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. But the third thing that's true for every person who's entangled in sin, we've talked about this each week, is that your influence for the Lord is corrupted. So those three things are true for every person. The first week we talked about the pride of life. Last week we talked about the fear of man. Today we're going to talk about another of these systemic sins, these sins that are the root of many other sins in our life, and it's the sin the Bible calls the lust of the flesh. Now if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to read verse 15 and 16 together. And I just welcome in those of you who are watching this morning online. We're so glad that you're with us and worshiping with us this morning. And also the men over at our Billy Moore unit, that our Billy Moore campus. We're excited that you guys are worshiping with us as well. I encourage you to find your Bibles this morning as well. And why don't all of us stand this morning just out of reverence for God and His Word. And I'll read aloud 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, where it says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Thank you. You can be seated this morning. What does it mean to be entangled in the sin called the lust of the flesh? And parents, let me just put you at ease this morning, okay? You didn't know before you got here that we were going to talk about that this morning. And so this will be a G-rated message, okay? promise you that. As much as it can be talking about this subject, I'm going to keep it G-rated. But this really is an opportunity for you as parents, maybe an opportunity you've been looking for to start one of a bunch of conversations with your children and your teenagers related to this subject. Because as a parent, there can't be anything more important than you to you in your mind and heart in terms of preparing your kids and protecting your kids Uh, than protecting them from the lust of the flesh and the entanglements that that can create in their life both now and later on. You as a parent, like all of us as parents, want to protect our kids' purity and it's it's a tough moment when you realize that your kids aren't as innocent as they used to be, when they know a lot of things. And the reality is if you don't have that discussion with your kids, somebody else will. And don't leave that up to the internet to be the source of their information because it's too accessible and they'll find out about that. So this morning, I'm going to keep it G-rated, but just know at the end of the message there's a a page on our website that I'm going to send you to as parents that will have some resources there for you to know how to continue to protect your kids through um, 
this whole idea and this whole topic. So I want to remind myself of that to mention that at the end of the message this morning. The Bible talks about the world system, and it talks about as a part of the world system not loving the world. The things in the world include the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. We've already talked about the pride of life. Lust is one of those things that is pervasive in our culture, but what does it mean? What does the original word mean? It means this. It simply means a passionate desire or something a person focuses on with intensity. That could be a lot of different things. It's not always talking about sinful things in the Bible, but most of the time that it uses the word lust or desire, it is talking about sinful things. So that's what lust is. What is the flesh? Well, we're not talking about skin here. We're talking about that part of you that's your old self, the part of you before you knew Jesus, that part of you the Bible calls the old self, the old man, or the natural man, the Bible even refers to it. And I'll tell you how to understand this. Let's say you're driving down the road and somebody suddenly pulls out in front of you. What comes natural in that moment? <laughs> maybe some bad language, maybe a bad name you call that person, maybe you yell at the top of you. Whatever comes natural, that's the natural man. That's the flesh. That's you reacting in the flesh. And sometimes we will say when somebody's uh, really upset about something, man, they were just in the flesh. You know, they're just, and that's oftentimes what's true. It's not a measured response. Martin Luther said it this way, the flesh equates to affections and desires that run contrary to God, not only in the area of sexual activity, but in every area of life. So if you put those two things together, you would say the lust of the flesh is an intense desire to please self over God in every area of your life. What's true is that uh, there might be other things that that relates to, but most often when the Bible talks about the lust of the flesh, it's talking about personal purity or impurity. 19 years ago, I was the youth pastor at this church on a day that most of us remember, if you're of a certain age, the day called 9-11. Before 9-11, nobody ever referred to September 11th as 9-11, but on September 11th, 2001, you all know what happened in our world. Well, that day we had scheduled as a staff an in-town one-day staff retreat. The summer was over and we wanted to gather together like we typically do and just talk about the rest of the year and how things were looking. And we were all asked to bring one agenda item with us that day because we wanted to stay focused on what we felt like in our ministry were our greatest needs. My one agenda item as the youth minister was to talk about how to help teenage boys in my youth ministry who were struggling with personal purity, who were struggling with the lust of the flesh. Because in my conversations with them at camps and on Wednesday nights and just interacting with guys, what I was finding out is that the internet at that point had been in public use about four years. And it was eating my men in my youth group, my young men's lives up because they were struggling with what they were seeing. They were struggling with inappropriate things. And so those young men that were 12 to 18 are now 31 to 37 years of age. 19 years have passed. We had an epidemic then. What do we have now? Well, let me just share some stats with you that are fairly current. 68% of Christian men view porn at least once a month. We're not talking about people outside the church. We're talking about us. That's almost two-thirds of men who call themselves Christians. At least once a month, the number's probably much higher, view porn. 33% of Christian women view porn at least once a month. That number is on the rise. A third of Christian women. Now that's probably even not even honest. There's probably more than that. 56% of divorces stayed as a major contributing factor, a spouse's continued use of porn. 
over half the marriages that fail would say that one of the main contributing factors to their failure is a spouse who won't stop looking. 90%, listen to this parents, 90% of kids age 8 to 16 have viewed porn online most while doing homework at your house, in their bedroom, somewhere else. So when I say you got to start having those conversations with your children, and they're not going to walk up to you and have it with you, you're going to have to initiate that. It's very, very important. The average age of initial exposure to pornographic images online is age nine. That's getting younger. It used to be 11. So we live in a culture that's pervasively influenced by in, impurity, and, and only, 70, only 7% of churches have programs to address this. You can be glad you're in part of a church that does have a program to address it called Celebrate Recovery, among other things. So you take all that information, and those are fairly current stats, and honestly, you'd have to say that the church is entangled in this sin called the lust of the flesh. No question about it. So what does that mean for us? How do we deal with that? Well, that just means, again, that as a church corporately, if that's who we are, if that's a profile of what's going on in, in our church and in other churches in our culture, then we're a church essentially that's unable to communicate with God, unable to grow, and unable to really influence the world for Christ the way that He wants us to. So essentially, if I'm the enemy of Christianity named Satan, my goal would be to entangle every Christian in some sin, to keep them from moving forward. So this morning I want to share three discoveries quickly with you about this idea of the lust of the flesh. And the first is this, that the lust of the flesh is short-sighted. You ever known somebody who uh, was making decisions and as maybe someone who was a little wiser, a little older, maybe your own kids in this situation, they're making decisions and you go, this is really not going to turn out very good three steps from now. In a couple of days, this decision you're making is really not going to work out too well for you. It's like when you're a kid and you get your first paycheck and you're like, I have all this money. I don't know what to do with it. I don't have any responsibility. I just have all this money. And so it's Friday and you get paid and by Monday you don't have any money left, you know? And that's fine if you don't have to pay for anything, but if you got to buy gas or pay for your insurance or some other thing, then it's not hard to think about situations where people are short-sighted, where they make decisions today strictly based on what's going on today with no thought about what comes next. And that essentially is what happens in the life of people who are entangled in the lust of the flesh. I bet you didn't have your quiet time out of the book of Lamentations this morning. Lamentations is a book in the Old Testament that's essentially a book about mourning. It's a book Jeremiah writes to say, look at what has happened to the people of God, the nation of Israel. They became entangled in all kinds of sin, and ultimately God allowed another king to come and conquer them. And this is what it says. How does that happen? How does a person get there? How does a nation get there? How do the people of God get there? Lamentations 1.9 says this. She, being Israel, never considered her end. Her downfall was astonishing. There was no one to comfort her. New American Standard says she did not consider her future. She made decisions based on right here, right now, with no thought about what comes next. And every person who is entangled in the sin called the lust of the flesh does the exact same thing. Israel, in her glory days, could conquer any nation. No one wanted to fight Israel because they had God on their side. And so God allows them to have this beautiful city called Jerusalem with this beautiful temple. And they were a world power for a time. And then they drifted away from God and they became entangled in all kinds of sins. And God allowed a king to come in and destroy their city and the temple and take all of them captive back to Babylon. 
And what, the, what Jeremiah says, looking at that whole thing, he goes, I'm astonished. How could the people of God who had everything, how could they now be this people who were slaves, who've been carted off to Babylon with no freedom of their own? How could that happen? That's astonishing. That's exactly what people do when they look at someone who's caught up in the lust of the flesh. They go, what are you doing? You're headed for disaster in your life and you're not even thinking it through. Do you know where this ends? Have you considered your future? Have you considered where this ends? Most people have not. So we see people fall, we see them destroyed, we see them lose everything sometimes, and we go, how could that happen? They didn't consider their future. They lived in the moment. And when you're caught up in the lust of the flesh, when you're entangled, that immediate gratification is all you think about. They don't consider questions like this, how will my, how will my life be affected if I can no longer communicate with God? How will my life be affected negatively if I not only can't move forward in my spiritual growth, but I begin to drift back into my old lifestyle and my own pattern of living. What will happen to my marriage? How will my marriage be destroyed if my wife or my husband finds out about my lust? What will happen to my relationship with my kids? What will they think? How can they respect me once they find out that I'm entangled in this sin? What will happen to my relationship with my friends? And people will stand back and look at our lives and go, how could that happen? How could that person fall? It's a reality and it's a sobering thought. The reality is most people who are entangled probably ask themselves those questions from one time or another, but they discount the consequences. Oh well, it's not that big a deal. My spouse will understand, my kids will just have to understand. I don't know what they tell themselves, but they discount the weight of the consequences that come. Proverbs 6.32 says this, the one who commits adultery lacks sense. Whoever does so, destroys himself. Who would set out to destroy their own life? No one. But when you're caught up and entangled in the lust of the flesh, you're so short-sighted that you don't realize that that's actually what you're doing, that your end is destruction. There's nothing good waiting for you in the future. Proverbs chapter 6 and 7 deal with this whole idea. So if you want to read further about what the Bible says about it, I encourage you to do that later on. Uh, particularly chapter 7, because chapter 7 tells this story of this woman who's a seductress and, and this man who falls prey to her seduction because he's entangled in the lust of the flesh. And the very last two verses of Proverbs 7 say this, he follows her impulsively like an ox going to slaughter, like a deer bounding toward a trap until an arrow pierces its liver, like a bird darting into a snare. He doesn't know it will cost him his life. A trap, a snare, those are all things that happen when you're entangled in your life. And none of us would set out to be a part of that or to want that in our future. But when you're entangled in the lust of the flesh, you're discounting everything that's going to happen next. And your Bible, the Word of God is trying to warn all of us that that is the certain future of people who become entangled in this sin in their lives. So this morning it's a warning to say everyone who's entangled in the lust of the flesh is short-sighted. But secondly, everyone who's entangled in the lust of the flesh this morning is self-centered. You say, well, self-centered, that sounds so condemning. No, I just mean they're focused on themselves. They're self-indulgent. You know what the definition of self-indulgent is? They're characterized by doing exactly what one wants, especially for pleasure. They live to please themselves. They are self-focused, self-centered, people that are entangled in this sin. And that accurately describes what the flesh is. Paul, in his last letter, the letter called 2 Timothy in your Bible, 
He says, in the last days, he describes what people will be like, and this is what he says about them. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love of what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, and then he uses this phrase to sum it all up, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Do you know you were created to love God? You were created to have a love relationship with God. That's what he wants from you most of all. He never created any of us to love pleasure, but we do. And he says, you can't love God and love pleasure. And so what happens in the last days, he describes all these terrible things, these characteristics about people's life, and he sums it up by saying, they'll be lovers of pleasure because they are full of themselves. They are self-indulgent. They're also, I would say, people who sort of worship themselves. They put themselves in the place of God in their lives. You call it, I call it selfism. They're all about themselves. If Jesus is the rightful Lord of your life, and he is, he's the only one qualified to do that, by the way, to lead your life. You take him off the throne and you put yourself there, then you've now said, I live to please me. He, I am on the throne of my life. Jesus said, any man who's going to come to me, he has to deny himself. He has to not live for himself, essentially. Is to remove himself off the throne of his life and put me on the throne of his life. Have you done that yet in your life? Is he your leader? When you become entangled in the lust of the flesh, you've taken Jesus off the throne and you put yourself there. You've enthroned yourself. Gary Smalley said this several years ago. I heard him say this at a, at a conference I was at. The number one killer of every relationship, whether it's your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your kids, your relationship with your parents, your friends, the number one killer of every relationship is selfishness. I mean, how many of you like to spend the day with somebody who's totally focused in, about themselves? Most of us don't choose that, right? We go, oh, I got to hang out with that person today, or I got to be with them all day at whatever I'm going to. No, we, we don't enjoy being with people who are all about themselves, right? We enjoy being around people who are selfless, not selfish. Selfishness is always a relationship killer. So, what you see when somebody has put themselves on their throne is they're essentially saying, I matter more to me than you matter to me. And I say that to the most important people in my life when I'm entangled in the lust of the flesh. I say that to my God. God, I'm more important than you are. Honey, I'm more important than you are. Kids, I'm more important than you are. That's what you're saying when you become entangled in the lust of the flesh. You become self-centered, focused on yourself. And, and anytime that happens, it's a relationship killer. They're people who are enslaved in the lust of the flesh basically take on idolatry. I said it's a systemic sin. It leads to other sins. And one of the sins it leads to is idolatry. You replace Jesus and you put yourself there. You're worshiping an idol. You are not Jesus. So you become an idol in your own life. And then people who are entangled in this become self-deceived because they say, well, you know, I mentioned all those statistics about online inappropriate material that people look at online. People look at that stuff and go, this doesn't affect anybody but me. There's nobody here but me. No one knows I'm looking at this but me. This doesn't hurt anybody. In fact, it doesn't even hurt me. Self-deceived because that's not true. The reality is it affects all the other people in your life. Selfishness always separates us from the people we care about most, always. 
And God intended in a marriage, God intended for you to have intimacy in your marriage, to draw you together. But anytime you become so focused on yourself, the opposite effect happens. You become distanced from the person that you have committed the rest of your life to. So there's been quite a bit of research that's been done over the last few years because of the proliferation of pornography on the internet, internet primarily, about brain chemistry. What happens in your brain when you view inappropriate material online? Well, they've done a lot of research, and actually what they've discovered is that whatever the source of your pleasure is, your brain sends you back to that source. So if that is your spouse who you're married to, who God intends for that to be in your life, then that's great. It draws you closer together. But if it's something else, like an inappropriate image on a website or on your television or somewhere else, then your brain is drawn back to that. Your brain seeks out the source for fulfillment. And what happens if that's not your spouse? It destroys your marriage. That's why 56% of divorces have a contributing factor of lust, because it destroys it. So who in the world would choose that? Every person who's entangled in the lust of the flesh. That's where you're headed in your life. It's a sin to take very, very seriously. It leads to addiction. So not only is it short-sighted, not only is it self-centered, the last thing I wanna share with you this morning is the lust of the flesh is shaming. Who wants to admit that they deal with that, that they struggle with that, that they give into that? No one, (laughs) none of us do. We would never wanna admit that. Shame is the feeling, that painful feeling of humiliation caused by a consciousness of wrongdoing in our lives. That's, that pretty well describes it, that, that bad feeling we get when we do something we're not supposed to do. And Satan loves to use shame to to keep especially Christians distance from God, just to shame us. Well, you should have never done that. I can't believe you did that. He's the accuser of the brethren, the Bible says. In Ephesians 5, 3, it says, but sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for saints. So we know as followers of Jesus, we shouldn't be involved in anything that's immoral or, or inappropriate or impure like that. And so when we are, we seek to keep it a secret. No one has to find out about this. No one can find out about this in my life. I have a secret now that I don't want anyone to find out about because it's shameful. And I feel ashamed that I'm involved in it. But as long as it's just me doing it and nobody else knows about it, it's okay. God always knows about it. God's always involved. Billy Graham's the one that said this, if you knew what was in my heart, you would spit in my eye. Probably all of us could say that. If we could take all of our hearts and plug them into that video monitor up there and show all of us what goes on in our heart in a 24-hour period of time, most of us would go, no thanks. (laughs) No one knows about that but me and God. God knows everything that goes on in our hearts. So if we were honest, we might have to say, well, I am ashamed of the way that I live, especially related to this topic of the lust of the flesh. And I don't want anybody to find out about it. I don't want my spouse to find out about it. I don't want my kids to find out about it. I don't want my friends to find out about it. I don't want my parents to find out about it. So we just stuff it down and keep it a secret, we think. Proverbs 10, 9 says this, the one who lives with integrity lives securely, but whoever perverts his ways will be found out. Guarantee it. It's going to happen. But if you're just so consumed with the moment, you're not thinking about what happens when that happens in your life. I love that. He talks about integrity. Integrity is slice my life open. Find me anytime by myself. Put my heart on a monitor and what you're going to see is I reject sin. I reject sin. I'm not talking about me personally. I'm just saying as a person who's full of integrity, you cut them open and you find the same thing every place you look. Integrity. 
Not some secret compartment over here that they don't want anybody else to know about. Some pet sin in their life, like the lust of the flesh, that they don't want anybody else to find out about in their life. When you have integrity, you can walk securely because you don't care. There's nothing to be found out about you. But when you pervert your way, the Bible says you will be found out. And being found out is something that most of us cannot even think about or tolerate. Jesus knows our secrets. The Bible says in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, Jesus said this, you've heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, Jesus knows what goes on even in the secret places of our lives. He's aware of all of it. There are no secrets with him. You say, well, yeah, but I know he's going to love me regardless. He will, but he'll also let us suffer the consequences for our choices. And those are painful and difficult to go through. So we just live in shame. We keep that to ourselves and we think we can handle it. And yet we continue to repeat it over and over again. We struggle with it. It's, a, it's something we don't have victory about in our lives. How do we get victory? I love this verse in Romans 8, 1. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is a hallelujah verse right there. You know what condemnation is, right? Condemnation is like when, when they actually the Pharisees caught a woman in the act of adultery. And they brought her to Jesus and they said, look, we caught her in the act of adultery. Our law says we can take rocks and throw them at her until she's dead. We can basically take away all her chances, her chances end today to change her life. It ends today. Being condemned means you have no more chances. This is over with today. And I don't know what Jesus wrote. He bent down and wrote something in the sand. That's the first question I'm going to ask you when I get to heaven. What did you write? Either their girlfriend's names or their particular sins. I'm not sure what it was. I have no idea. Whatever it was, uh, he looked at it and said, those of you who are without sin, have at it. Pick up a rock and start throwing. But no one did. They all drifted away and walked away. And then he looked up at her and he said, where are your accusers? And she said, they're all gone. He said, neither do I condemn you. I didn't come here to condemn you. I didn't come here to take away your chances. I came here to give you the ultimate chance to meet me as Savior and have your life changed forever. He says, go your way and sin no more. Don't give into this anymore. Don't live in this anymore. And that's what I want to say to you guys this morning. Those of you who are watching online, if you've never asked Christ to come into your life, you can live the rest of your life condemnation free. <laughs> and that's a hallelujah moment right there when you can say, I'll never be condemned again. I'm always going to have another chance because the Lord, when I, He becomes my Savior, He gives me more chances to get this right, to walk with Him. And so this morning, we're not done yet, but I'm going to stop right here and ask you just to bow your heads, okay, just for a second. And those of you who are in the room or you're watching online, if you've never asked Christ to come into your life, I want to give you a chance to do that before I go any further, right here. The Bible says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father unless he comes through me. So I want to give you a chance right now to do what I did when I was 15, almost 16 years of age, and that's put my trust in Jesus Christ and be adopted into his family, have my forever changed. And you could do that right now. So right where you are, whether you're in the room or watching online, I'm going to ask you just to, just to repeat after me. There's nothing magical about my words, but it's just a way to say to the Lord, I want to call on your name to save me. Just say this. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner and, and I don't want to be. <laughs> I don't want to continue to hurt you. I reject sin in my life completely. I want to love you and have a relationship with you. I believe in you. I believe you're the savior of the world. Now save me, please, Lord. 
would you save me? Thank you. Thank you that there is no condemnation in my future because of your gift, your death, and your resurrection for me. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, thank you. If you can look at me, if you prayed to receive Christ this morning, we want to rejoice with you in just a minute. Those of you who are watching online, um, we want to help you know what your next steps are, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But I pause there to say this, that, that what happens is when you're entangled in this idea of the lust of the flesh is that God doesn't condemn you. He actually redeems you. He has a great thing for you. He has a great future for you. 25 years ago, 1995, a good friend of mine who I went to college with 10 years before, 1985, in Brownwood, Texas at Howard Payne University, called me to say, I have to tell you something. Because he and I and several of my friends had been praying way back in through our college years. We used to all go out to this deserted place and pray on Friday nights and Saturday nights for Brownwood, for our country. Prayed for revival, that God would bring revival. And he said, I am calling you to tell you that God has done something. He started a revival here in Brownwood, and I can't wait to tell you about it. And what he told me was that on a Sunday morning at the 8 o'clock service, which is usually the lower attendance service, true there too, that at the end of the service, a young man, a college student, walked to the front of the church and took the pastor by the hand, and they began to talk, and, and the young man was crying, and the pastor got down and prayed with him, and just, you know, then the invitation was over. He asked the young man to sit on the front row. And he said, the pastor said, John Avant was the pastor. He said, I, I'm going to do something I never do. He goes, you guys know Josh. I'm going to ask Josh to come stand by me. Josh stood by and put his arm around Josh. And he said, Josh wants to confess something to you guys as his church this morning and ask you to forgive him. And he said, uh, so Josh came up. He gave the microphone to Josh. And Josh, in a very broken voice, essentially talked about lust in his life and his um, Victor, his lack of victory in terms of that area, his being entangled in the idea of the lust of the flesh. And this is before there's phones, this is before there's an internet, personal computers and all that stuff that people could use to access it, but there was still access. There was still a way to, to do things that were inappropriate and wrong. And so Josh, very broken, stands up. Well, about 9.15, my friend gets to church. He teaches the college class. He goes into his classroom. There's nobody in the hallways at church. He's like, weird. There's, where's everybody? You know, there's people making coffee, putting donuts out, whatever. He goes in. A guy walks by his classroom and says, hey, we're all supposed to go to the worship center. There's something going on. You got to come here. So he goes down to the worship center, and people are starting to come in for the Sunday school hour. And, and there's a young, there's an older man actually at the front who's standing up and he's weeping and he's confessing sin. Not necessarily this sin, but he's confessing a sin to his church. And my friend Kyle said, that started at 9.05 on that Sunday morning and at 2.30 that afternoon, it was still going. And there was no second service, there was no Sunday school hour. The pastor finally got up and said, you know, we got to go home. Your kids need a nap. They need something to eat. We got to go home. But we're going to come back tonight at 6 o'clock. Bring somebody with you. And my friend called me to say that this had been going on for nights. Two or three weeks this happened. No service, no music. Come into the worship center and stand up and confess your sin. And not a manufactured thing. You can't make something like that happen. People being honest, being transparent. It was real. People were getting saved. The chief of police stands up and confesses sin in that room. I mean, there was just brokenness. We all pray for revival. I'm not sure we really want it because that's what it takes to have it. Transparency, honesty, confession. And when that happens, God moves and people decide, you know what, I'm, I'm coming out of the shadows. 
coming out of the darkness. I don't want this in my life anymore. Whatever it is, I'm moving on. Well, I share that with you to say that's what a culture of confession can look like. It doesn't have to look just like that, but it can look like that. The Bible says in Romans 2, 4 that God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. Think about that. The kindness of God is intended to lead us to repentance. So I want to ask you a question. Married couples, parents, if your spouse is sitting here today or watching online and going, I need to end this. I need to stop this. I need to quit sinning in this way. I need to quit giving in to the lust of the flesh in my life. I need to be a different person. I need to have integrity in my life. But if I tell my spouse what I've been involved in, I don't know what might happen. And I can't face that. So I'm just going to stay in my shame. And I'm just going to stay in this cycle of repeating this sin over and over again. And stay in this cycle. And I'm never going to get the help God wants me to have in my life. Because I'm not sure how, let's say it's a kid. I'm not sure how my parents are going to respond if I tell them. So, so let me challenge you with something. If the kindness of God leads us to repentance, and I just said there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So we know, well, I know when I confess my sin to Jesus, he's not going to say, that's it, your chances are over, you don't get any more. He's never going to say that. He's always going to say, come to me, let me forgive you, let me heal you. I know that about him. You know that about him. So here's what I want you to consider. If your spouse or your kid was to come to you this week, today or sometime later this week, and say to you, I need to confess something to you related to the sermon on Sunday, related to the idea of being entangled in the lust of the flesh. Could you say to your spouse before they ever come to you, or to your child before they ever come to you, whatever you come to me and confess, you just need to know I will forgive you for it right now. Would that be powerful? Could God use that to break the chains in your life, to get you to come out of the darkness, to come out of the secret place where you're hiding this stuff instead of dealing with it? Yes, he could. Will he? Absolutely. So are you going to be, and I'm not blaming, listen, I'm not blaming spouses for what your spouse may be involved in. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you can be part of the solution. You can represent God to your spouse. The kindness of my spouse leads me to repent. Not the harshness, not the condemnation, the kindness. Would you do that for your spouse? Would you do that for your children? Because you may be the key to them getting out of this, getting untangled from this, and confessing in a way that could move them forward. Now, what do I expect this morning? Are we going to have a time for people to come forward? I doubt any of you will come forward this morning. I wish you would, but I don't think you will. So here's what we've created. If you go to mobberly.org slash extra, what you'll find there is a story of a man in our church, from our church, who has struggled with this sin in his life and is victorious now. He's come to a place where he has victory in his life. And he very willingly wants to be transparent with his church and say, I can help you. If you're a man and you're struggling with this, just click my email. His story is there, and his email address is there, and you can click that and trust him. He knows where you're at. He knows what you're struggling with. You don't have to tell anybody on staff if you don't want to. That's up to you. You could start by telling him through an email this week, today, to just say, I want to come out of the shadows. I want to get free of this. Or if you're a wife 
whose husband is struggling with this, and you know that already, but you're so done, you can contact his wife because she's been there. She's walked through that with him. Her email address is there. And you could find that and contact her and get some help. Also, there's maybe women in this room because we know 33% of women are doing inappropriate things on the internet, Christian women. So maybe that's your struggle and you're too ashamed to mention that to anyone. You could reach out on that same page to our women's minister who could help you get some steps and take you the next steps in your life to get you some healing. I mentioned a resource page. There's a page at the bottom of that for parents for resources to how to protect your kids, what they look at on their phones, what they have access to on the internet. Because as long as they're at your house, you need to try to protect them, to help them keep from getting entangled in this because you know where that leads to in their life. And you don't want that for them. So this morning, I'm gonna lead us in a word of prayer and then we're gonna be dismissed, okay? That's the way we're ending today. No song, no music, but I'll be out at Guest Central. Our decision prayer partners will be out at the hospitality room. You can come talk to me if you want to, but if you'd rather just go to that page today in the next couple of days and reach out to that young man. Also tomorrow night, our Celebrate Recovery program here at the church that meets over in the crossing at 7 p.m., a young man, another young man from our church is gonna be sharing his story of victory related to the lust of the flesh as well. So if you're courageous enough to just come and listen, you don't have to do anything else, you can come hear his story as well. I wanna lead us in prayer this morning. And I wanna give you a chance to just be honest with God this morning. Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? Would you tell him that this morning? His arms are open wide. You just confess to him. God, I'm so thankful that you're bigger than my sin, that you're better than my sin. You're better than any human I know. I'm so thankful there's no condemnation for those of us who know you. There's always hope. You always can redeem whatever's going on in our lives, and I'm thankful to know that, for the hope that brings me, God. I pray for everyone who's in this room, everyone who's watching online. God, I pray that this would be a time in their life where they would have victory and learn to walk in victory from now on, God, because we know that's what you want for us. And though we may have done things, God, to you that are shameful, we know you don't shame us. You forgive us, you restore us, and you help us to walk forward with you. So God, I pray that you'll again use this for your glory to your victory in people's lives to break through the darkness, God. I pray you'd bring light, and I pray you'd restore marriages and restore parent-child relationships and just bring revival, God. Please, (laughs) we need it desperately. And you're the only one who can do it. So God, I pray you would have your way in our lives today. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.